This is 4L with Ryan O'Neill and Rebecca DeCoster. Oh, Ryan, we have a real special treat for everybody today. We've been trying to get some really good guests to come on this podcast, and I think I think today we did it. Well, I think the only other guest we've had is Kate Weaver, which was fantastic. Um, and today we have, I think, a fascinating guest, both from her journey, from where she started to where she is now, and just what she has to say about pretty much everything. Um, do you want to say who it is? Michelle Obama. <laughs> no, just kidding. Not, not Michelle Obama. Oakland County Prosecutor Karen McDonald, yep. who was who, formerly Judge Karen McDonald, who I worked with as her referee for a number of years. Right. And she, prior to being Judge Karen McDonald, um, worked as a private practice attorney for um, Jaffe Rate. And prior to that, she was an assistant prosecutor at the Oakland County Prosecutor's Office, um, the office that she is now in charge of. So um, I think you'll find it to be a pretty fascinating discussion and conversation, and we really enjoyed having her. So enjoy listening to her. All right. So we are thrilled to have the new Oakland County Prosecutor. And my old friend from the courthouse, Karen McDonald, with us this morning. How are you doing, Karen? I'm great. And it's really <laughs> exciting to be on your podcast because I've been so interesting. I'm curious about it for so long. Have you listened to any? I have not. <laughs> <laughs> curious, but not curious enough to listen. To. I'm curious. Um, I, I'm gonna put it. I'm gonna put it in the list of things that I would really like to do but cannot get to. That which includes a lot of uh, books that I'd like to read, um, organizing I'd like to do in my house, um, radio programs, all sorts of stuff that just that just piles up over the last seven months. But. Yeah. Well, you're probably well, you've been, busy. You, right. You've been pretty busy the last few months here. It, you know, looking back on the last year and a half, everybody has sort of this weirdness about, wow, what just happened? But for me in particular, I, you know, I left the, my seat on the circuit court bench um, a year ahead of the filing deadline for prosecutor, which is what I uh, was required to do, obviously not knowing if I would defeat the 12-year incumbent and then also move on to the general. So it was, it was it was the risk of all time to begin with. Uh, but then, you know, six, seven months later, the pandemic hit and um, my ability to fundraise and get my message out to, to voters was severely uh, impacted. And that was candidly just terrifying to me. I, I was really, there were a few moments at my kitchen table because of course I couldn't leave the house uh, where I was just thinking, what have I done? This is this is just going to be a disaster. Because once the pandemic hit, you know, the political uh, thought of the time really was, this is going to favor incumbents. Um, I guess, you know what, it's just been a long, long, long um, period of time where I've heard over and over and over again, you can't do that. That's not going to happen. Uh, there's no way you can do that. Um, and people who are really close to me, even now on my leadership team and around me, they'll tell you the worst thing you can say to Karen McDonald is there's no way you can do that because um, that's, I just can't accept it. So I always make sure that it, that it happens. But, you know, when I, when I left the bench, which some people would think is one of the greatest jobs you can have for a lawyer, um, everyone said, you're making a mistake. You can't, nobody can beat Jessica Cooper. Um, so here we are. Uh, and yep. then starting in January, it's just been a whole different kind of really hard work. Um, but I love it. I absolutely love it. I think it's so important. Um, but I've never hit this level of exhaustion before. Uh, even when I was parenting little kids as a, as a single mom, um, I, I come home 
late-ish at night, and I am just exhausted. Right. So, and and we, look, I, I, to me, that's the most fascinating, it, it, and then there's more that's fascinating, but that's one of the most fascinating parts of the whole story is, is, is leaving a spot, like being a circuit county judge, um, and, and, and walking away from that and then saying, I'm going to go up against somebody who I think I've read had never up to that point lost an election. I mean, like most Not people, in 40 years. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. that's daunting. And, and there's very few people who are willing to roll the dice to do that. And, and I think a lot of people want to, you know, talk about that. I know I do at least talk about that a little bit more, but maybe for our listeners in California and Utah, cause we are nationwide. We're, we're big time. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your background in terms of how you even got, before you got to the bench, you know, what, what got you to that spot. So um, I think you had told me once before, maybe I'm wrong, that, that you actually worked as a school teacher first? I did. I read an undergrad. I, I went into, I, I was a high school teacher. Uh, more out of real, a real passion that the, what I thought was, one of the biggest issues in our country and still do, which is public education, um, and that we needed really good, passionate teachers. And that was a great job. It was very hard. Um, you know, it takes a while. You don't know what you don't know in your early 20s. So eventually I did decide I was going to go to law school, did that, um, worked as a research attorney for the Court of Appeals. Um, Briefly after law school, I, I did have a job offer at a, a large corporate firm where I was going to make lots of money, but I actually had my first child my third year of law school, so I gave birth to my daughter in February and graduated in May. Didn't feel like I should start at a, as an associate at a big law firm with, with a baby. It's not something I just wanted to do. Um, and so I, I, I worked for the Court of Appeals and then really had a moment to say, okay, what is it I want to do? Not not what is the most prestigious, what, what I'll make, where I'll make the most money, um, but really what do I want to do? And what I really wanted to do was be a prosecutor. And that was just out of this innate um, desire I've had really since I was a little kid to protect vulnerable people. And if you look at my whole career, my trajectory really points in that direction. Um, while I was an assistant prosecutor in this very office, I, I prosecuted child sexual assault cases. I eventually left and went into private practice uh, for a lot of uh, reasons. But um, I, you know, I, I ended up actually practicing family law, not because um, that was something I'd always wanted to do, but when I tried to go back into the more corporate commercial litigation world, it just it just didn't feel like I was really doing enough, um, anything towards what I thought was important in my life. I, I've always just wanted to be able to lay my head down on the pillow every night and know that I did something to make to make this this world better um, and better for somebody somebody who needed help. Um, and you know, I, there's nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with corporate America, and it, it's it's vital and necessary and exciting and challenging. But I ended up in family law and and moved to a firm where I could practice family law. Um, and as you know, because you both do this work, it's it's very important work. People who are going through um, issues with their 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 spouse or their children or custody. I mean, these these kids really need sometimes people uh, to lead their parents in, the, in a better direction. So, um, and then uh, became shareholder there after seven years. Um, but in 2012, there was an open seat on the circuit court and I, I ran for judge. Now that seemed risky at the time, but I didn't have to leave my job. So even if I had lost that election, I still had a job at my law firm, um, served on the bench for six and a half years and then, and then left it to run for prosecutor. So 2012, the seat opens up. Um, what was appealing to you about going from private practice where you're, where you're representing moms and dads to then going to the bench where you're, you know, you're the decider? What, what was the draw to that for you? 
Um, I, I, I think one of the leading um, goals or, or reasons that led me in that direction was the, the impact I saw that divorces uh, and custody battles have on children. And, um, you know, in private practice, you have a client. And in my case, I represented fairly affluent, wealthy clients. And it really doesn't matter what your education level is or where you come from or how much money you have. Um, people behave very badly. And you can only really have so much impact as their lawyer. At the end of the day, you, you, you have to advocate for your client. And they, they could listen to you, they could not listen to you, um, but you're not, you're not in control of anything. Um, but a judge is, a judge is. And, and, I, and I know you, you saw me many times on the bench um, hold people accountable for behavior that was uh, hurting their, their kids. And uh, I was also able to move into this space that I didn't even know I, I needed, which was the ability to show grace and compassion. And when you are a litigator, particularly in the family law um, setting, that's a very hard thing to do. And look, I was known as a bulldog. I was very um, successful. I was good at trying cases because I came from the prosecutor's office where I did that a lot. Uh, and don't get me wrong. I, I love going in, into trial. I love going into battle. That's just for litigators. That's what we do. But there was this whole other side of me that I just couldn't ever... Uh, tap into because there was no space for that as a as a as a woman partner um, in a large law firm and in a courtroom setting. There's it's it's just it's just more difficult for women. You you have to be seen as tough, um, and you can't. There's a side of you that's very difficult to show and still uh, have people. You know, see you as as a strong force. But when I was on the bench, you know, it's not just the divorce and custody cases; it's the juvenile delinquent cases, it's the abuse and neglect where we're trying to reunify children with their parents. Um, you know, I think a lot of people were surprised, and even I was a little bit how how much of an opportunity I had to show compassion and grace to kids to people struggling. I was, I was definitely known to sometimes get up, you know, step behind and, and down from the bench and go and, and hug a kid who was in before me or a, a mom who, you know, overcame some serious obstacles to get her kids back. Um, I, I believe strongly that judicial demeanor is imperative and we should pay more attention to it. Um, Toxic, angry screaming from a judge, I don't believe is ever appropriate. Uh, so I think most people just want to be seen and heard, and they can accept a bad ruling or one that doesn't go in their favor, but they just want to make sure that, that they've been seen and heard. And I, again, like you said, I, I had a chance to see you a number of times because uh, I worked as your referee um, for a couple of years there. And those were the moments, like you said, when, when you would hug a, a child or, or talk to parents, not as a judge, but, but really sort of as a, as a, as a co-parent. I mean, I, I felt like you were very relatable in terms of making yourself accessible to say, you know, I'm not speaking to you as a judicial hearing officer or as a judge, mm -hmm. like I'm talking to you as a parent and I can relate to the struggles that you're going through. And I felt like being able to personalize that really allowed litigants who were going through a really difficult time to both feel as though what they were expressing was being heard, but also that, like you said, whether you got a bad ruling or a good ruling, that this person at least is taking the time to understand what I'm going through and can in some ways relate herself. And I think that's sort of a piece of the whole, you know, court system. I think many people don't feel like they always get that it's, it's, you know, about lawyers cashing, you know, checks and, and look, we all want lawyers to get paid and, and, you know, 
when I was in private practice, I wanted to get paid to, but, but people sort of view it as sort of this bureaucratic system that I think, um, doesn't really transcend to, you know, working with families. And I, again, just having the chance to sit in your courtroom for a number of years, I never felt like that was the experience that people received there. So that's, that it's leads me to this real, you know, as time goes on and, you know, obviously my plate's full of this heavy task before me, but I also spend some time trying to unpack what's happened and, and why, why, what really drew me um, to do what I did. Stepping down from the bench was, I think, it was, um, it was an exercise in, in humility, um, with something I think is missing for a lot of people. Um, <clears throat> when judges leave the bench, they are um, still entitled to use their, their, um, their title honorable or judge, people still refer to them. In fact, my um, predecessor in the prosecutor's office was a former judge as well, and she still wanted everyone to call her judge, uh, which I felt was a giant conflict of interest. You're now the, the highest law enforcement official in the county. You appear before judges, you're um, essentially a party, you're not a judge anymore. But here's the thing, um, it's very enticing. People stand up when you walk in the room, uh, everyone, um, treats you differently. You are um, revered, even if you don't act in ways that that show that you've earned it. And so, it it was definitely hard. I, I I left the bench on a Friday, and I immediately started my own uh, private practice while the you know what while I was gearing up for the campaign. So I had a case literally on Monday. I walked into the courtroom that Monday, and I was no longer a judge. I was just an attorney. And I probably said 50 times when I was greeted, good morning, judge, good morning, judge. And I kept saying, it's Karen, please call me Karen. And it was hard for me. I'm not, it, it was, it made me uneasy because you, you just start relating in this world. We're like, oh, I must be smarter and, <laughs> and better than everyone else because no, everybody treats me like I am. And I see it, I see it all over um, with, with, my colleagues there and everywhere when you when you have somebody who's reached a position where everybody has to give them that kind of respect but i felt so strongly that if i couldn't give that up then i shouldn't be doing what i'm doing and i felt equally strongly that if i hung on to a job that i knew probably wasn't the right fit for me at that time anymore because I couldn't give up that elevated status. That's, that would just be shameful. Um, so, no, they call they, they talk about like black growth disease and it, it really is a thing. You, you just, it takes a very unique person to check themselves and say, you know what, this is my job and I have this, um, that's, I have, I've been given this authority by the, by the voters, but that doesn't make me smarter. It doesn't make me um, all-knowing. It, it doesn't make me um, any more deserving of respect. And it certainly doesn't give me a pass to, to not try to be better every single day. Um, and, you, you know, I, 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 everyone listening to this has, has experienced it. Um, in some level, either in the workplace or, you know, a courtroom, that all of a sudden you're treated in a way that <laughs> it's just, it's not respectful. And, you know, I was never afraid to say, I don't know, um, give me some time. I was never afraid to say, um, let me think about it. Um, and I was never afraid to uh, just pause and listen. Um, and I think that's really important. So yeah, everybody calls me Karen now. And I, despite the fact that that's actually kind of like the worst name for a white woman to have right now, right. um, it's, it's, it's important. It's important. Um, I remember that first Wednesday when you, after you stepped off the bench, I think you had a motion in the courtroom and I remember how 
weird it felt walking from the hallway into the courtroom and not seeing you on the bench, but seeing you standing in line with all the other attorneys waiting to be checked in. So apart from the fact that people were calling you judge, how did, I mean, how did you feel? I mean, I've always been curious about how you felt, you know, going from six years of being on the bench to now suddenly being right back amongst, you know, your, the litigators who you were with beforehand. I mean, how did you feel in that moment? Well, what I sought was the the comfort and going back to that anonymity when you walk in the courtroom. People, I don't think, quite understand or realize how intense that is to be on the bench with the you know on Wednesday morning with fifty people and your all eyes are on you constantly. Um, I really thought an upside to all of this, even though it was this giant risk that everybody said I was crazy for doing. Um, was that I get to just be a lawyer. I get to walk into a courtroom and I get to sit down and be amongst everybody else and nobody's, the spotlight's not on me. And then I actually get to try cases and start being an advocate again, which I was really excited about. And I remember um, those moments, the one that you're talking about, I felt really disappointed. (laughs) um, I was definitely a lawyer and standing in line with the rest of them, but Everybody was still looking at me and I was totally in the spotlight. So that was, I was, I felt uncomfortable and unsettled. Like maybe I can't ever go back, you know? Um, And I, you know, because my private practice started in April of 2019, um, the the campaign really started ramping up, I would say, Pretty much right around the time that COVID, um, we, we had to go in quarantine. So I guess I was not in private practice. I didn't have like a full load enough. I, I assume in time people would just forget that I was a judge. Uh, but you really can't go back. It's never going to be exactly like it was. So. Oh, also I felt annoyed because <laughs> I, I wasn't, I was listening to I was listening to rulings about some of which are were cases that I had handled with kids and I was just sort of like, oh, that's just not what I would do. Um, so, but hey, you gotta give up control, right? It's got to be hard. I mean, especially, I mean, look, that's the one unique aspect of family law cases is that, you know, unlike a civil case, which might be done in a year or two, these are cases that linger for 10, 12, 15 years. And so you have a history with the parties, you you have a history with the kids, and now you're suddenly sitting in the gallery listening to somebody make a ruling on a case. And, and, and I just, I would imagine it would just feel very weird because you're like, no, no, this is what, this is what we should do, or this is what I would have done. And then, you know, you're right. You, you've, you've relinquished that and you've, you, you know, are letting somebody. Yeah, I mean, I had decisions. moments where they would, their case was called and I'm in the gallery and they knew it obviously because they, they had known me as their judge and then walking back to the gallery after their case and just looking at me like, can you please do something like how could this happen? It was, it was very difficult for me. It was very difficult. And look, you know, sometimes there a lot of cases you're going to, you, as a judge, you make the call and it's, it might not be ideal, but it, it's not, it's not, you know, life shattering, but some of the cases and the way you treat people. And when you make a call, even if it's a temporary one about, custody or a a vacation or uh, child support or whether a kid's going to get therapy that they need. Those are, those are big freaking deals. (laughs) I mean, I am a divorced parent and I am a stepmom. And I think that also really um, made me more relatable because one thing I always hated when I was practicing family law is you get a judge and they just get frustrated with all of the, the argument back and forth and um, you sort of be, you get this like, okay, fine. You know, all of you just need to calm down or that's it. Like both of you can. And the thing is, that's what might seem silly to you is, is not at all silly for somebody who's going through a divorce or is, is a divorced parent. For instance, if it's mom's job or dad's job to drop off the soccer gear so that you can take your kid to soccer 
and it continually is never dropped off, you know, yeah, after five or six times of that and you got to go get it or your kid doesn't go and now you're late and your kid's upset and it's, it's really annoying and there should be a remedy. There should be a remedy. And, and I think we as, as referees and, and our friend of the court and our, our judicial, our, our judges and their staff, look, you're being paid to have the patience to listen to those things because those small things lead to real um, bubbling and simmering uh, anger and resentment. And that is not good for kids. And um, so I always took the time to listen to it. I just did. And I think sometimes people were frustrated that I let people talk too much. But um, I had this like unwritten or unspoken rule in my head always. And it was if a litigant, not a lawyer, but if a litigant said to me, you know, because a lot of times there aren't lawyers involved or even when there are, Your Honor, Your Honor, Your Honor, can I just say one more thing? Um, those were always code words. And my answer was always, yes, you can say one more thing. Um, and I don't know why I just felt so strongly that if, if people aren't allowed to, to speak and say what they feel and what they think, then um, I, I haven't really done my job. Well, and I think people tend to keep coming back to the well until they feel like they've been heard and had a full and fair hearing of whatever their grievances or complaints or questions so are. They're going to keep coming so, back. I agree. I, one of the last few weeks on the bench, um, I had a family that had been on my docket since I started, and um, it was a really, really difficult case that involved um, one of the parents with a pretty significant um, drinking uh, alcoholism, and there were a lot of relapses, and uh, the other parent, the, the father, also had some issues, and it was contentious, and it was heartbreaking at times, and I spent a lot of time with them, and um, the last few months had been rulings that were very unfavorable to death, um, and the last motion call, there was, again, a problem. And again, I had, after listening to both, I, I said I had to make a call that was not favorable to dad once again. And um, I said, okay, that's it. And he said, Your Honor, can I, can I just say one thing? Which, of course, I said yes. And he said, um, I just want you to know that I know I haven't always been happy or polite sometimes, and I know you haven't been happy with me, but I want you to know that I'll never forget what you did for my family, and I know you cared, and I just want to thank you. I mean, I'm just, I, I get emotional just thinking about it. Like, that guy, I did not, like, he, I guess what impresses me is he had the insight to understand that even though I didn't always make the call in his favor, I actually cared enough to listen and I cared about his kids. And, you know, that was probably one of the most, when you think about like, why do you do what you do? I mean, that it's not the money <laughs> and it's not, it's not like the actual, sometimes schedules, a lot of it, there's a lot of downsides, but that to me was the biggest compliment. So I'm wondering, since you're talking about transitioning off the bench and being in private practice for that period of time while you were waiting for the campaign to ramp up, like from my perspective now versus when I was in private practice, because I was in private practice for 15 years or so before I became a referee, I think if I went back into private practice now, I would handle my cases very differently than I did when I was in private practice prior to being a referee. And I wonder if you experienced that sort of shift where you had the experience of being the judge, the fact finder, um, and seeing the theater play out in front of you and thinking, boy, I wish they would have taken a different tack. Or it might have been more persuasive had they handled it this way, if it changed how you viewed your cases when you were in private practice after you left the bench? 
It really did. Um, I, I was much less uh, adversarial and confrontational because um, I was always trying to counsel somebody that, look, you can file that motion and there's probably good reasons for doing it. But taking on a very aggressive, litigious, uh, confrontational tone is not going to get you anywhere. And um, I also, I guess I was, I, I approached um, my clients with just a more practical uh, tone. For instance, particularly in the family bench and family court, um, which it's, it's a very unique area of the law if you're a family law practitioner. You know, when I was in private practice both times, I was dealing with people who had a lot of assets and the, the, their cases involved not just a child custody issue, but pretty high level valuation of assets and sophisticated business principles. And there was a lot to it, which is really challenging and, and rewarding. Um, however, writing uh, a, a volume <laughs> and a brief, um, and it just, it's not practical. For instance, you know, judges anywhere from 30 to 70 sometimes motions on your docket on a Wednesday. You get any a 25-page brief, but really I want the nuts and bolts of it. I want to know that you cited the law, and I want to know what you want and why, and that's it. Um, and, you know, I was on law review, and I was top 100% of my law. Like, I, I love the scholarly aspect of, of law, but in the family court, you just got to get right down to it. This is what I want. This is why, and here's the authority for it. Um, so I think just seeing things from the other side and what I know judges, given their their own um, time constraints and ability, it you really got to be concise and right to the point in your argument. And when the judge wants you to stop talking, you really got to stop talking. <laughs> You're not doing yourself any favors, um, but... You know, it was hard for me. I also did some mediations, and I, I'm just, I'll, I'll, I'll admit this. You know, I'd go into a room, and I'd say, okay, here's what, here's what I think should happen, and lay out what I knew was a really good resolution. And people would say, no, I, I don't agree. And part of me was like, wait a minute, did you just hear what I said? <laughs> it's really hard to transition into, I'm trying to, like, like make people resolve things, but I have no authority to like, hey, this is what I said is going to happen. This is, it's, it's, it's just not easy. Yeah. So a along those lines, because part of our podcast, as Rebecca reminds me, is to focus on the things, you know, ways that lawyers can improve. So what, what were some things that, and we'll, we'll keep it to when you were a judge, things that you would see lawyers do that you were like you're you're not doing this right like what what are things that were pet peeves that things people could improve on this is might not seem that important and might surprise some people but i i strongly and firmly believe in the formality of the 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 courtroom and while i am relatable and friendly and would get off the bench to hug somebody, I believe strongly that when you walk into court as a lawyer, you have to respect the long-standing rules um, that that has have been in place for hundreds of years now um, in some form of respect and uh, how you, you act. You wear a suit coat. You, you, um, you don't interrupt a judge. You prepare your client. You, um, you follow the rules. Um, uh, I saw behavior that just was mind-boggling to me as a judge. You know, I don't care if I'm Mickey Mouse and wearing a black robe. I'm throwing in a Disney reference for you, Ryan. Um, <laughs> uh, you're gonna, you're gonna show some respect. You don't have to agree with me, um, and. 
that that is just shocking to me. And I think once we lose that, we've lost everything. I mean, we have to be respectful. We have to respect the the system. You gotta come into court dressed like a lawyer. You work hard to to get that law degree and be and get admitted to the bar. You have to respect, you have to show your client and your opposing counsel and everybody around you that you take your job seriously and you're not going to shout or interrupt or uh, behave in a way like, you know, like a petulant child. You're, you're a lawyer, you're an officer of the court. Um, and uh, I just, I feel strongly that we should maintain that, especially in family court, um, where it can get, you know, very far from what we would consider normal things in a courtroom and the topics, but we we have that process for a reason and it should be respected. So, but I hold judges to that same standard as I just have spent a lot of time saying, you know, you're not, it turns out you're really not, a, you're not, you're not sainted. <laughs> you're not, um, you're, you're just, you're just the judge. Um, and you got to treat people with respect. Also, know the rules of evidence. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> For goodness sake. What is, I mean, look, I'm not one of those people who like can pull up numbers or dates or like, I'm not an in the weeds um, detail sort of person. So I often, even now, like I don't, I don't have the rules of evidence memorized, but I have my court rules with me or the ability to look up my court rules. And I know enough to actually, I know what the rules are. I know what hearsay is. I know um, what the exceptions are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, it, and it really stuns me sometimes how, how far astray lawyers have gotten from doing it the right way. Like ju just follow the, just follow the rules. Follow yeah, the law. Right, and I were just talking about that. Like, we must be outliers because we would still prepare a trial notebook like nerds before we went into an evidentiary hearing. Like I have this document, I need to get it in. Which witness am I going to use? What do I need them to say? What are the objections going to be? How do I get out from under those objections? And it should be thought through ahead of time instead of five seconds before you start talking about the document. But here, here's what I realized quickly. Um, I never thought this would be part of my job as a judge, but I, I taught lawyers a lot. For instance, you know, I, I started out my legal career in the prosecutor's office. You have, you know, boot camps and career prosecutor courses where you are, you are trained. Okay. But if you have somebody going from law school hired into a smaller law firm that doesn't have resources or maybe the person, the partner they're working for just doesn't see, doesn't have the time or the patience to train. Who is going to teach that lawyer how to introduce a piece of evidence? Who is going to teach the lawyer, um, you have to ask, may I approach before you approach the, the bench or the, or the witness? The, you know what the answer is? No one. So it's, it, it was me a lot of times. I, I remember this first hearing um, a couple of years, my first years on the bench, and it was two very, very, very young lawyers. And they they both were in practice for themselves in family law. So I, I don't know what kind of training I suspect it was maybe they did, you know, some some like lunch trainings in like the local bar association. But I remember one lawyer, it was a PPO hearing and he wanted to be the, the woman's lawyer wanted to introduce a picture of her injuries she sustained from um, her husband. And, you know, they first want to introduce, and I said, well, you have to show up to the other side. And I started out irritated, and then I realized, like, okay, wait a minute. They have no idea what they're doing, so I'm going to just teach them. And so I said, you have to show it to the other side. And he looks at it. And he starts shaking his head and I said, okay, he said, I don't, this isn't fair. And I said, okay, no, no. do you mean you have an objection? And he said, yes. <laughs> I said, okay, what's the objection? And then he says, well, there's, this is a terrible picture. There's blood <laughs> all over her face. 
and she's beat up. And I'm just, I'm just sitting there and I said, uh, do you mean it, it's prejudicial? Is that your objection? <laughs> he said, yeah, it's prejudicial. Um, so my point is after the whole hearing and it went on like this for a long time, I mean, if, how do you introduce evidence? How do you cross examine? How do you, um, how do you do a direct examination? What are, how do you say to objections? Afterwards, I called them to the bench and I said, look, I hope that you two are not upset um, at the way that I was instructing you. And they both said, we were just talking about it in the hall and we are so glad because we did not know these things. <laughs> and if you think about, if they had been in front of another judge, it would just been a screaming fest. Like, and what does that mean? That doesn't get us, this certainly doesn't teach them anything. So I, but I, I think the problem is it's not, we, we think it's, oh, it's laziness. Maybe it is because people are overworked and they can't get to things, but it's also like, who teaches you to do that? Like, you're right. We do. I did, I did that. I put a trial book together. I have my rules. I put my rules next to what I know are going to be objections. And, but I learned that from, from somebody. If you don't get an opportunity to work for somebody who can take the time to teach it to you, then how do you learn it? Yeah. If no, only there was a podcast that was going to teach people these things. That's right. If only there were. <laughs> well, and I think I have more patience for someone who I can tell has not been practicing that long, no matter what their age is. I mean, they could be 50 and not been practicing that long. Um, or they could or they're be, in family law and they shouldn't be because they don't know what, what they're doing, but they well, might be skilled in other areas. Yeah. Or they might, I mean, maybe they normally do real estate transactional work and they're doing right. this for a family friend. Exactly. Um, but I... I do get impatient more so with attorneys who I know do family work, who've mm -hmm. been practicing longer than me, who mm -hmm. still don't know how to enter a document. It's mm -hmm. frustrating um, and it's hard to remain patient, but important, I think, for demeanor and, and so that people... Yeah, you know, I, 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 I developed certain skills that I could, or techniques that I could address it without getting mad, and that is, um, okay, um, attorney Smith, I'm going to take a short break so you can get organized and get and you know find out what you're why you're trying to introduce this and and figure that out. Yeah, and, you know they I leave and they're just sort of standing there and then I'd send the clerk out um, and she'd say, look, you have to get the rules of evidence and you have to use them. Um, that would be the way. I would always first attempt to deal with it. Now I realize as a referee, you don't have as much time and leeway, but um, you know, similarly, um, so a, kind of a different topic. It's just this issue of how do you, how do you maintain the appropriate level of respect for your position without being um, unpleasant. And um, in this job, I, you know, the office is 180 people. Um, and though my mission, and part of my mission is to make our office represent the people of the county, meaning there should be people of color and um, a diverse, some diversity. I find myself in a room almost, um, you know, on a, sometimes on an hourly basis as the only woman. And um, it's, my, my chief assistant is, is a white male, David Williams, and great guy. When people come into my office, we have this long conference table, and a lot of times they will just look at David. And, uh, you know, maybe in my 30s, this would just really upset me and I'd get, you know, a little snippy about it. When I see that happening, I just, I'm quiet for, for a while, the, while the conversation goes on. And then I say, okay, I'll let you know what I decide. <laughs> and it's really just a way of nudging people back into their lane and reminding that I... I'm the, I'm the prosecutor. I worked hard to be the prosecutor. 
Um, I'm no dummy. I actually know just as much, if not more, about this issue. And I, I get to make the call. I'm not going to assert that, that authority in a way that is offensive because I don't believe that is the right way to go about it. But I do say, I'll let you know what I decide. And then it's just very clear. You know, it doesn't really matter who you choose to make eye contact with. That doesn't change the fact that I get to make the call. I, that kind of, I did want to circle back to something that you said earlier about being a woman in private practice um, and what a challenge it was to not show your flank, essentially, like you have to maintain a facade of being tough, not being vulnerable, not being soft. Um, and what, and I experienced the same thing. I remember being pregnant with my first child and probably being like at the beginning of the second trimester, having just like told people I was pregnant and having the partner in charge of the litigation department say to me, you're not having another, are you? Cause I don't think I can go through this again. And <laughs> it was, it was par for the course, but also really disheartening. And I think it's such a challenge to be able to be taken seriously and not lose your humanity um, and okay. not lose your ability to, you know, lose parts of yourself in favor of, of keeping, you know, making partner or getting clients in the door. Not just parts, like some of the, some of the very best parts. Um, of yourself it's it's so what I've tried to do here is really um, focus on culture because I have a lot of big policy reforms that we are um, implementing but uh, I say this on a daily basis um, culture eats policy for breakfast so I can come in here and tell people this is I want to do all of these things but the bottom line is if your culture is one that's not doesn't value people and who they are nothing else matters so what i i have experienced moments like the one you just uh talked about so many times in my life and i essentially in a big corporate law firm and in other places you have to pretend like you don't have kids you have to pretend like you know i'm not leaving because of my kid at five um you know it's something different so I, I sort of made this pledge to myself that I was going to be the boss that I've always wanted. And uh, I, I do a quarterly, we do a, like a, a newsletter every few months and, and I always write um, a, a, an article. And the, the second one I did was that about um, working parents and particularly working moms. And I, I said, uh, working moms and, and dads need grace. And you, your children are, are only um, young for a short time, and they should be your first priority. Uh, and just because people leave the office at five o'clock, that working mom, I mean, we had this debate. So there was a, there was a couple uh, lawyers here who have been here a really long time, and we were having a leadership meeting, and one said, you know, maybe people should just start saying past five o'clock. And it was really just sort of, um, it, it troubled me. So I later I went in and talked to him and I said, yeah, so John, what time do you leave the office at night? And he's like, well, I don't know, sometimes, you know, six. And you no, know, I, I said, what, forget about what time, like what time, like, at what point do you say I'm done, my work's done here? He's like, I, I don't go until my work is done. I said, okay, um, do you know when I had to leave the office? And he said, no. I said, when daycare closed, or when I needed to pick up my kid, or I needed to get to the game. I didn't have an option of staying until my work was done. And I know if any working mom is listening to this, that is, you know, and some working dads now, I agree, but we, did, we never get to leave when our work is done. But I'll tell you what we do. We leave whenever we need to, and then we go home and we make the dinner and we do the bedtime and the bath time and all of that. And then we get the workout again. Um, if you give respect and flexibility to working mothers, they will be the most hardworking, dedicated employees you'll ever have. And um, 
we we're, today is our first annual. Later on, we're doing our first working parents. Um, we're we're convening to say, okay, how can we make this a better? Or do we have blind spots in how we are um, are running the office? And and is this a place for working parents? Because I that that that's what makes them that's that's going to make them better prosecutors. Not you know what I mean. But, the things that the skills you learn to be a good parent, you know, we we want to honor that. We don't want to treat it like it's somehow a, a liability for them. I I think that culture is important, and I I think law firms struggle with that because they, it's historically been a grind it out, grind harder, grind longer. Um, bill as much as you possibly can in a 24 hour period, you know, go without sleep if you need to. Mm -hmm. um, I think because historically it was predominantly male and there was someone at home who was dealing with the details, but that's not how it works anymore. Everybody's out. No. And it's why it's also though, why when you look at partners, the ratio of female to male and you know, their incomes, women are still not, um, they don't have equality in that. And, and you know why? Because we really don't want it. Most of us do not want, are not willing to give what it costs, which is uh, a, a complete dedication and priority to your work. We, you, that's why you see so many women leaving to do different jobs because they, they don't, they just don't want to do that right now. And um, you know, the, the people who do make it, it's, it's with a lot of help at home. You got you got to have a lot of help at home. Sometimes people don't have that option. But you know, the prosecutor's office is a little different. You know, I don't have the carrot of a six-figure salary plus and earning potentials up to you know how limitless. That we're public servants. There, I can't I can't entice people with money, um, but I can entice people with that the work is some of the most, you know, I in, in my view, interesting and fulfilling work you can do as a lawyer. Um, and also having a workplace where people allow you to say your appearance, which really wasn't the, the case before I got here. So what, I, I, go I, ahead, I Ryan. Well, uh, I, I, I'm just gonna ask, go like what was enticing to you? like? I know you talked a lot about your decision to leave the bench and go to the prosecutor's office or run for the position that you um, won in the election, but what was it about going to the prosecutor's office that was enticing enough that you would leave your position on the bench? The 2016 presidential election changed things for me. Um, I as a, as a woman and as a, somebody who cares about vulnerable people, minorities, poor people, um, I just couldn't accept that that was our president. Um, and it really had less to do with politics. Uh, it's not, it's, it's really nothing to do with politics actually. It was more about the caliber of, of and character of, of that person. So, um, so I went to the women's march and very powerful. And then I just started really thinking and not being able to stop thinking that I no longer wanted to be in a position where I was required to be objective and impartial and not be an advocate or not a lot to really say what I thought about things. Um, and so uh, I sort of started, you know, moving towards this place where I thought there's really no other um, option here if I remain in the judiciary because you are, that is, that's got to be impartial. Um, and so I, also feel that if we're going to stand on the sidelines and say how bad things are, then we have to be willing to 
to step into the arena. And um, it was scary and risky, um, but I felt that it was important. And I think criminal justice reform is one of the most important issues facing us. And I think um, the killing of George Floyd really put a spotlight on that. Um, we had a prosecutor here that didn't believe racial disparity exists in Oakland County. Um, so, and there were, there were a lot of things that the prosecutor's office wasn't doing. They didn't participate in any of the problem solving courts, which just doesn't make any sense to me. Um, so there were just things that I felt were real injustice to, to the people of our County. And I just wanted to do it better. So. The, the one thing that has struck me since you've taken over has been, I think, a, a sense of transparency that I have to imagine isn't always easy, right? Because when you're in the position of power and authority, you know, I think the general perception from the public is ever like everything's going according to plan, right? Like things are being handled the way that they should. And there have been a number of occasions where you've stepped in front of a podium and said, we're, we're looking at this or, you know what, I don't know that this was done correctly. Um, I remember I was just reading an interview that you did. I think it was a couple of months ago where you said that you're reviewing every juvenile sentence right now. And, yeah. and, and, and some of them are being, you know, you're asking for some of them to be changed. I mean, but I, I have to imagine that that can't be terribly easy because what you're doing in one sense is, is giving the public transparency, but maybe also admitting that mistakes were made. Absolutely. I, I look to do this job. Well, it takes an incredible amount of courage on a daily basis. Um, you, you have to take positions that might not make, uh, make a lot of people upset. Um, the juvenile lifer positions, we did change positions that that involved a lot of terribly uncomfortable and painful conversations with victims who had been told that we would pursue life without parole sentences. And, and it was contrary to the United States Supreme court. It was, and my prior, the prior administration just didn't care. Uh, I think a better, even more poignant example is the, the case of Juwan Deering, which, made a lot of um, news and, and probably is about to become even bigger, where we, we discovered that there was some prosecutorial misconduct in a trial that took place in 2006. Um, and I, I, just, I just made it public. I mean, I, and I also asked to hire a special prosecutor to investigate the the misconduct that potential mis misconduct that took place at that time, and it's it's just it's just not easy. It's just not easy. I mean, I don't. It doesn't make any friends uh, with people who worked on cases like that, and just so much easier just to say, "I'm sure it's fine. I'm sure he's guilty." So, and I just couldn't do it. Um, but yeah, do I want to be spending my time doing that? Absolutely not. No, I don't. That is, that is the last thing I want to do. Uh, but if I don't do it, there's a lot at risk. And so, um, yes, I've been completely transparent, even though most of the time it just makes my, my job harder. Um, but that's what, that's what reform's about, right? We're really going to take a look at it. We're not going to just try to pursue the, the highest charges and reward prosecutors for getting convictions without ever really thinking through, like, what makes sense here? What's the best outcome? Um, maintaining public safety and being aggressive about holding people accountable while also implementing common sense criminal justice reform is, is incredibly difficult. And if there's no, I don't have a, um, I don't have a roadmap on that because it, it really hasn't been done. And it certainly hasn't been done as um, a female elected. They're just, they're just not enough people out there that are doing it well, that are still seen as 
protecting public safety, but also recognizing that we have, we have messed up and we are incarcerating people of color on a much larger um, percentage than anyone else. And we gotta ask why. And we also have to stop criminalizing substance abuse and mental health. If you wanna throw those people in jail, go ahead. You've been doing that for year, you know, decades and um, nothing's gotten better. We're not safer. Um, we are, our substance abuse is at all time high. We, we are, kids are dying because they're taking opiates that are laced with fentanyl. Um, and we are, it's the highest ever um, opiate overdose right now. Like those are big problems and they are not gonna be solved by throwing as many people as we can in jail for short periods of time. So really having an honest conversation about how to solve problems is hard. Is really hard, right? Um, but I really, I, I love doing the job. I, I, I feel so um, privileged and honored to have this job and to lead all these people in this office. Um, and you know, I just try to get it right every day. And sometimes I succeed, and sometimes I don't. Well, and I think for people listening, I mean, look, the one thing that I've known about you for years is that holding people accountable is something that is important to you. So if, if there's people out there that think criminal justice reform is simply some type of way to, you know, you know, put more bad guys on the streets or to, you know, lessen sentences for dangerous criminals, I, I don't think that's at all the case and not not consistent with who you, I mean, you want people to be accountable, but it has to make sense. I mean, the, the, yes. the punishment has to fit the crime and we have to look at who's being incarcerated and, and, and what those crimes are attached to. And ultimately, is it making us safer? Um, you know, it, I, I can tell you why we do things the old way so often. It's because it's the easiest thing. Mm -hmm. It's so easy if you just can like look at everybody that, is a suspect or charged with a crime, is a terrible person, and they deserve everything and more, um, and never stop to think about, well, wait a minute, um, what, what's gonna happen after that two-year prison sentence for a, a nonviolent felony? What, what's gonna happen? And what's gonna happen to the community? What's gonna happen to that person? Um, that that individual's children, family, job, um, and have we addressed the substance abuse issue? Nope. I mean, it, it's harder to, to 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 look at that than it is to just, you know, want to get the the highest charge, highest possible sentence, and never think about what happens afterwards. That's easy, um, but. What we're doing here is much more difficult. Yeah, I think. That, yeah, yeah, I was just going to say, I think that looking at sort of some of those socioeconomic factors, mental health issues, substance issues, um, it's critically important. I think that both Ryan and I have the experience of looking at a case on our docket where we've got two parents who are struggling. Um, and I, I look at what their children are growing up in and the resources that they have or more likely don't have at their disposal to deal with their trauma that they're experiencing. Um, and we know where the road is going to go with their trauma. It's, there are only a few directions it's going to go. Mm -hmm. um, and you hope for the best. But And those are the people I think that you see as a prosecutor later on as adults who didn't get the interventions that they needed Right. To be able to have the resources to be a functioning adult in society where you can go out and get a job or you know what resources you need to get a driver's license or stay in school or whatever, go to trade school. It's frustrating. And I feel like it, we have to look at those, those socioeconomic factors and we need as a family court to do a better job of putting some scaffolding in place so that these kids don't just walk out when they're 18 years old with no resources. Exactly. And, you know, the first Oakland County prosecutor who's a, who's a, who has experience in the field of family law. 
and presided over the juvenile docket. And um, as a result, I understand how important our juvenile division is. Um, and we can't just treat it like, oh, it's not as serious because it's not adult felonies. Actually, it's, it's at the heart of what we're doing here. If we put more resources and focus on how to divert kids from ever ending up in the adult system, then, then we're, doing, we're doing our job. Agree. All right, you, you've given us so much time and, and so we're thankful time. for that. I want, I want you to go back and, and do the important work, but I have to ask you, most important question. Okay. Going back to your days on the bench, who was your favorite referee and why was it me? <laughs> it was you for sure. Thank you. <laughs> That's for Schmacy, who I know is listening, so. <laughs> thank you so much thank you so much thank you it was nice to see and hear your um, your faces and your voices and and thank thanks to both of you for what you're doing because it's pretty hard work <laughs> maybe it's someday we'll fine. see each other in person again yeah that would be nice right <laughs> thank you